I know we well, did we, something. We have a shout out about Camp Scholar opening, so that'll remind us to talk about the discounts. Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah, that good spot. Your spot. Yeah. Oh, there you are, boy. All right. I say again. I think this is an airplane <laughs> that even David won't fly. All right. This has been on the list for a couple of weeks, no, and it's it, what. You know what I'm talking about? Well, you're right. This is an airplane. You're right. Okay. It's not an airplane, although they keep positioning it as an airplane. They they kind of talk about it. This is a hover bike. This is like like the world's scariest flying machine. Well, this, yeah. Guy's wearing a motorcycle helmet. Man. <laughs> well, no, I've always he's wanted. Got motor, he's got motorcycle gear on. Yeah. It's not an airplane. Yeah, I know. No, no. Well, on that t- on that count, I I've always wanted to have or or regularly fly an aircraft that required me to wear a helmet because that's cool. You know those those military you know crash helmety things that got the big ear ear you know ear places for the headphones. Right, and the pressure mask with the mic built oh, in, yeah. so you always sound like oh, this. So I've always wanted that. But but uh, you know maybe repurposing a motorcycle helmet. Well, no, that's probably what that's probably what the ultralight guys wear, right? Yeah, I see all the time like the the powered parachute well, some guys. Of them, and some the of them do, and some of them have a radio, and they wear a headset that gives them headphones and a mic, uh-huh. or you know a helmet that gives them headphones and a mic. But we've got actually two airplanes here. One very very different. Jack, yeah, you can wear a helmet. In my airplane, if you want to, I mean, you look, can you look I? Kind of dorky. Cool. Yeah, there's nothing to stop you. I mean, you look kind of dorky, but if you want to, I'll let you. I've been in your airplane. I look dorky all the time. And just, 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 <laughs> just whatever you do, resist the urge to put Maverick or something like that on the helmet. Oh man, you know what they call me now? <laughs> oh geez, I don't know if I should bring this up on the podcast. So this is recorded, right? Tupper, yeah, Tupper <laughs> is working on on Acker Camp, the movie number one. Okay, and Tupper is hot for, and I, I'll, I'll say this out loud. All right, Tupper's got a thing about code names. All right, he loves to give people, you know, kind of military fighter pilot code names. All right, and so part of the whole Acker Camp thing was that he he went out of his way to invent. You know, slightly embarrassing, somewhat revealing code names for everybody, and I can't remember what they all are. And um, and so I had one from another project altogether that I don't even want to talk about. But and I didn't want to reuse that one, so I said to Tupper, "We need to come up with another code name." So he started a little little conversation thread amongst all the Acrocamp people, and nobody can come up with a good one. Then I'm in Las Vegas three weeks ago, doing a totally non-aviation related project. And one of the other members of the team is another guy named Jack. And so they're always trying to come up with names, different names to call the two of us so they can differentiate which Jack they're talking about. And suddenly someone noticed that there was a piece of equipment that they were using in this exhibit hall. It was one of these scissor lift things that goes way the heck up in the sky and people use them to hang lights and point things and hook things onto the ceiling and so forth. You mean like a truss? It's a man lift. Yeah, it's a man lift. That's right. And the brand name of this particular man lift was Skyjack. It was a Skyjack. All right. Uh, All right. And somebody saw that and said, because they also are tickled by the fact that I do airplanes. All right. And so they saw this and they said, Skyjack, that's what we're going to call you. And I was uncertain about this for a little while because Skyjack has other connotations as well. Well, it turns out if you look up Skyjack in the Urban Dictionary, there's a completely different meaning that 
we really won't even go into in this particular podcast. <laughs> oh, 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 stand by, guys. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, but you got to IM that to me, Jim. <laughs> but, but as the week progressed, I kind of liked Skyjack. Everybody was calling me Skyjack. And I kind of like, you know, the play on the, you know, flying the sky and Jack and the whole thing. And I kind of don't mind that there's this hijacking, you know, connotation because, you know, that's fine. Um, I mean, hijacking's not fine, but the connotation doesn't bother me. So they kept calling me Skyjack. And so halfway through the week, I talked to Tupper and I said, you know, maybe Skyjack is the name. And he trotted it out in front of all the Acrocamp people. And so they're all calling me Skyjack. How did I get into this? What was I talking about? I have no idea. <laughs> we're not going to get to the list. We're just not going to get to anything on the list, I can tell. Uh, we were talking about nicknames. And, am I going to have Talking to about whether I'd fly a sky bike. Yeah. And I uh, don't. I don't remember. Anyway, I'm sorry. A hover bike, Skyjack. Yeah. So a hijack. So so Skyjack, and they're calling me Skyjack, and uh, all the listeners are just yelling at their pod, their iPods now because <laughs> they're saying, "Jack, you were talking about this." I have no idea what we were talking about. They'll come back to me or not. A working hover bike. Yeah. So the hover bike is this uh, sort of motorcycle seat kind of thing, all right, with a ducted blade in front of the guy and behind the guy, and the theory is that you power up these 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 blades and you get lift and you go flying all right um and a they've never actually flown the thing really because the pictures that you see of it show it tethered to the ground with little two foot pieces of rope so that it never gets you know more than 18 inches off the ground oh yeah (laughs) that's it right there Jeb just sent a little text message to the two of us of what the Urban Dictionary has to say about Skyjack. I don't know what to get you for Christmas. (laughs) No, no, no. So the hover bike. Skydiving lessons. It doesn't really fly. (laughs) And everybody says that if it does anything, even slightly out of the ordinary, the pilot is liable to fall into one of the blades and get, uh, you know, chopped up. Oh, that's easily fixed. I mean... Uh, you know, it, it it doesn't take much of a structure to put a, a mesh screen over it yeah, that it, it also do- keeps twigs and limbs. Yeah, and it doesn't make any difference. It's only got two blades, which means the moment it the moment it rises more than three feet off the ground, it's immediately going to tip over on its back and smash the pilot to the ground. And it's just, so it's a good thing he's wearing a helmet. Um, how, can, how can you say that? They may rotate in counter clock or counter direction, well, which well, would even even it out. All they got to do is add two more, make it a quadrocopter. We know those things fly stably, and uh, you know, and um, so yeah, I, I, I'm not sure that whole stability thing. That's like saying there's human stability. Oh, yeah. like stability is way overrated. <laughs> is it really? There you go. That's a title right there. Stability is overrated. So, so you would fly this, David? Is that what you're telling us? I would. I am telling you conditionally. I'd have to see this flown. First off, and I'm not talking about a video. I'd have to, yeah. you know, like the uh, like the jetpack at Oshkosh a few years ago, uh, seeing that convinced me that within certain bounds, what they're attempting is viable. You know, two two hundred horsepower on a pair of blowers will lift you off the ground. This uh, racing along like Luke Skywalker, uh, playing Imperial stormtroopers racing through trees. I want to see him first. Yeah, so you're not going first. I want to see somebody else do this. But, you know, give me, you know, five, ten grand and a couple of months with nothing else better to do. I'll come up with something like this, and mine will be better. Well, 
Yours would have to be better. Mine would have to be better. My little sister's would have to be better. What? I got an old. I got. A, I got an old Kawasaki triple uh, two-stroke motor sitting in my in my hangar. It's just aching for a project. There you go. And you got at least one big old prop in your back room there, in your uh, in your uh, your uh, laundry room there. Yeah, that's yeah. That's for something else. Crank, it, crank that about crank that about fifty RPM, and I think it'll probably start. Coming <laughs> yeah. <out>. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> but in the meantime, it looks real good. Yeah. Yeah. The other airplane for David here is the other uh, sort of another end of the of uh, another end of another spectrum, and this is um, so Airbus announced this concept airplane. I, you know, they're not serious about this. this is just kind of publicity, right? Um, this is sort of a futuristic airliner, and one of many bizarre attributes of this airliner is that much of the skin is transparent, or is it actually transparent, or do they have like view screens so that you can see th- as if you could see through it? I'm, I, I suppose it's just a concept. Into this article, it's just a concept. It's certainly no, nowhere near flying. But uh, um, cabin walls will also be see-through. Yeah, is what it says. Yeah, yeah. so um, rather than rather than video or, or anything like that, um, I don't know what material they're talking about I, here. Um, there are materials strong enough to do it now. There are, there are. You know, uh, no question about that. Yeah, and, but I guess I guess where I come at this is. Okay, fine. That looks all well and sexy. I don't think everybody wants to uh, look at the airplane all that much, but let's maybe fix a few other things first before we start worrying about transparency. Yeah, I know. Well, yeah, that's kind of where it, I come. It, it'd need to be a chromogenic surface that that's you're controllable. That's so that chromogenic. Chromogenic. Yeah. You learn a new word. Yeah. What's it goes chrom- right along? It's it, it's a little bit related to photogenic, and it, it both takes a camera. No. Uh, what does chromogenic mean? Well, like a lens that turns dark in sunlight. Oh, like those glasses. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Because otherwise, think of the extra AC load that you're going to have to support I, if, I, if that big greenhouse, a woman like that you know, at five one zero, you know, less atmosphere, more sun. That's going to be kind of hot unless you can tin it somehow, control it so you can still see it at night. And think of how much this would speed up visual inspections at the A, B, and C level. You're saying they'd be able to see the structure of the airplane more easily? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I mean, you know, instead of doing all those eddy current inspections and die penetrant and running around there with little magnetic rings going, Hey, David, I love it when you talk that way. Yeah. Mabel, look there in that window. Is that a crack or is that something new? (laughs) Oh, no, that's just a spider web. Get that off there. Okay. Okay, you know, we won't uh, worry about that then. We won't, we won't tell the flight attendant. Uh, <laughs> they, they could de-ice it with great big tanks of Windex. There you go. Uh, yeah, see, I, I, I think this is what Jeb started to say a little while ago. I'm not sure that there would be a marketing demand for this because I, I, you know, I watch people fly on these airplanes. I always try desperately to get a window seat because I like looking out, but it's clear that there are people who don't want a window seat. They don't want Ooh, to look out. It's clear? What? <laughs> Keep going. Yeah, okay. So it could, be, it could be merely translucent. We're not sure. So, you know, and I like looking out the windows, but I'm not sure that even I would like this much visibility. All right. You know, this would be like, can you imagine being in the front seat of one of these, you know, the front row of one of these kinds of, it would be like flying in the breezy, you know, where you could just like got no structure all around you and you just kind of like well, see the whole. There's that. I'm, I'm sorry. There's... Jeb, go ahead. go ahead. Jeb, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, there's that plus, you know, 
do you really want all your passengers to have that much view of the sky going into Atlanta at rush hour? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. See, so I don't know. But, uh, I don't know. Sitting out in the front of a breezy uh, or, or a, a drifter or an air cam or something like that with nothing obstructing the view. If you get to do it with none of the wind effect or pressurization problems, uh, I, I'm not sure I see the downside of that except in one very low percentage situation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well... Um, the so, ground rushing up at you, dude. The I, I no, 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 up. I got that part. Yeah, no, I got that part. I wasn't sure where to go with it, though. Um, so, uh, all right. Well, so apparently you'll fly both of these airplanes. Oh, the the airliner, absolutely. Uh, you know, I'd like to start off on the right seat, though. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Get a little checkout first, right? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Hey, welcome, folks, to episode 241 of Uncontrolled Airspace, the general aviation podcast. Although tonight, not so much about general aviation. I don't know, not even so much about aviation tonight. This is going to be a weird one, I can tell. Clear. You're going to be hearing a little bit of background noise throughout the day, but it's just airplanes, so it's not, it's it's not really noise. good background noise. That's yeah, right. this, is, this is the best seat in the house. That's right. We got Skyriders now. We got Skyriders. We got now. Skyriders they, now. It, does that say UCAP? I can't. It's got it's a like runway it. in the front yard. <laughs> <laughs> and you're in sight, clear land. Turkey Central Ground, good afternoon, sir. Taxi via Foxtrot and Alpha. We're recording this episode on Monday evening, June 27th, 2011, and joining me here in the virtual hangar is my two good friends. First of all, Dave Higdon's out there talking to us from Wichita, Kansas. Hi, Dave. How are you doing tonight? Uh, we're just doing lovely. Uh, you know, nice day. Got work done. Have cold adult beverages and brown bottles. So talking to my good buds. So, you know, uh, got to fly some over the weekend. Rub-a-dub-dub. It's Nice way to start the week. Yeah, cool. And also out there is Jeb Burnside talking to us from somewhere near Sarasota, Florida. Hi, Jeb. How you doing? Did it rain yet? It has rained. It has rained. All it, right. They, Congratulations. It's been kind of overcast, uh, overcast and cloudy and, and whatnot. It's, um, I don't know, low 80s outside. You know, it's been that way pretty much all day. It sprinkled a little bit earlier. Uh, we've got some decent rain uh, Saturday and Sunday. Uh, for the first time in a while, mm-hmm. got enough. Got enough yesterday, Sunday to uh, to not only overcome the <clears throat> the day's evaporation, but add a little back. So that was that was good. Good, good. And what's the latest on your airplane? Still in the shop? Did you get it back yet? Still in the shop. I uh, had a nice long chat with the shop um, on Thursday. I don't expect to hear from them for a couple of days. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, um, they're backed up, and, and my little you know insignificant problem isn't. Uh, or my little insignificant task isn't their their highest priority right now. Right. Um, and uh, are, are you? I, I, I don't want to pry too much. Are you installing some new gear, something cool, or what are you? No, no. Um, just kind of tweaking up some things and fixing some things that aren't right. Yeah. Um, getting some standard, uh, uh, um, you know, inspections out of the way, things like that. Mm-hmm. Just, just you know, kind of maintenance and and uh, and touch up. Now, I, I wish I was, you know, maybe getting a few things installed, but. Uh, don't really need them, and um, uh, just want to make sure everything's working the way it should be. Yeah, especially with with Oshkosh coming up. Yeah, and I'm Jack Hodgson, and I'm talking to you tonight from uh, high atop the Reading Terminal Headhouse in Cosmopolitan Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Yay! 
Head house. Yeah, I knew you'd like Head that. House. I knew you'd like that. See, that's why if you go low down on the on the list there, all right, under the other section, all right, you will see a couple of links to the Head House and Reading Terminal. That's where I am. It's actually kind of cool. Very historic. This is a uh, the downtown Marriott Hotel here in Philadelphia. Uh, part of it is uh, it's part of the old Reading Terminal, which used to be the big monster train terminal. You know, with like thirteen tracks, and they'd all come into this big uh, train building and 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 the head house as it turns out and i didn't really know this until just now the head house is usually at the end of the railroad terminal building and it's the place where the ticket offices would be and where the waiting rooms would be and sometimes his offices and things like that and so this is the old head house building which is now a hotel and conference center and and other things and uh, we're here as part of working on the ist the isti which is a education technology and education conference that's going on right now here, and it's uh, okay, sure it's kind of largely taken over the uh, Pennsylvania uh, Convention Center here, and it's quite a big deal. Lots and lots and lots of teachers. So uh, well, it's, it's it's good they used that name when they did because I, I, I can't help but wonder about the stir that name might cause if someone attempted to tag it to something new today. And, Oh, Headhouse. Yeah, yeah, I know Headhouse. Thank you. Yeah, yep. So, let's see now. What's going on here? Uh, what's the first item on this thing? Uh, uh, oh, okay, this has to do with, yeah, uh, airline pilots stalling airplanes left and right. Well, up and down. As I don't know. I mean, I shouldn't make fun because it's serious. Um, David, is there more news? Are they, you see, your, your note here says experts are urging a return to light aircraft cockpits for stall recovery and unusual attitude training. Where'd that come from? Uh, it, it actually came from a, uh, an international assembly of people involved in training airline pilots and operating uh, airlines, the safety offices and, and the pilot management offices uh, through the International Civil Aviation Organization, ICAO. And they've been discussing this and cussing this and going over data uh, for quite a while and this particular little article we linked to uh, came out during the uh, uh, the Paris Air Show, the Paris Salon, which just ended last week, mm-hmm. this past weekend, actually yesterday for the public guys. Uh, and it was funny, I mentioned this to a group of aviators that I stumbled across quite by accident at a private strip on Saturday. And uh, a couple of them were instructors for professional flight training organizations and they were already kind of going yeah we've been expecting that because they've been talking about this for a while mm-hmm. and we don't think it's a bad idea getting pilots to train on certain uh, maneuvers and recovery techniques in actual airplanes is only part of it uh, that is and getting them out of sims the other part of it is a change in what the FAA and what the international authorities are going to uh, stress as the proper response to a stall being what most of us concur with and practice in flying our own little airplanes now. And that's push the freaking nose down first. Mm-hmm. I mean, real quick. Add power right behind it or right with it, but not first add maximum power. And then slowly begin to reduce the until and, and try to keep abs, absolute minimum of altitude loss. It's like, dude, you're in the high, high flight levels. Altitude loss is not a big deal if you can manage the recovery without, you know, exceeding V and E and lo- losing control in other ways. 
So they're going back to a different idea uh, from what they've been practicing and teaching for a long time, which is first advance power and then pitch accordingly. Uh, so what, what are they talking? They're not talking about having like triple seven captains do recurrent training in 152s. What, what are they? I, I think that's exactly what they're talking really? about. Really? Okay, yeah. I think it would be great. I mean, now maybe I, they'll let them do it in a 172, so an observer can sit in the back seat, like was popular a few years ago. Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. Uh, you know, they could legally accomplish it in a light sport airplane if they're really chintzy about the money they spend, uh, and what airline isn't, uh, or training organization. But you know, the 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 whole nub of this for me was, wow, they're coming back to what we never really abandoned. Uh, I don't think even in you know business turbine aircraft was add takeoff power the the, the first and primary response to a, a, a stall at altitude or anywhere else for that matter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There was now this is not not exclusively about Air France four four seven right. This has sort of been an ongoing mm-hmm. issue for some. Obviously, there was the uh, the Colgan Air thing in Buffalo a few years back and. Um, Jeb, you want to talk about this because you're familiar with a bunch of the other ones, too. Right, right. Um, I guess where I was going to jump in here is, is, is I guess, a question and a, and a comment. Um, what, what do these people know that we don't know um, about these pilots' training that they somehow have forgotten basic aerodynamics, basic airmanship. Um, you know, once, you, once you've earned a private certificate or a commercial certificate or, or God forbid, even an ATP, I would think that uh, recovering from a stall is pretty much in your DNA. Um, and and why, do we, why we need to, to train and remind people of that uh, is, is a little bit um, curious to me. Well, what? Uh, mo- mo- go ahead. Going, going, in, going into the high altitude upsets, um, there are certain things you do. There are certain things you don't do uh, in a high altitude upset. I'm yeah. not going. I'm not going to be um, um, presumptuous enough to, to say what they are because I don't have any kind of high altitude training or experience. And it, uh, it all depends on the aircraft configuration in, in, the, in the second place. Um, but uh, it, even then. These people are trained to fly these airplanes. Are they forgetting stuff? Um, I, I'm not sure where um, going into a light plane and, and going out and stalling it and doing unusual attitudes comes in as an important training regimen. Um, having said all of that, I can't imagine a better way to get back to you know learning you know some basic airmanship. And how to do what should be very basic uh, maneuvers mm-hmm. uh, than in a light airplane. Yeah. Whether it's light sport or an aerobatic uh, or, or even a bonanza. Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's not a very broad sample, but uh, some of the more notable um, airliner, what's the right word? Not crashes, but you know, airliners that have gone down and the result has been not tragic have involved a pilot that had other kinds of training. The two that come to mind instantly are the uh, Gimli glider, where they kept saying one of the reasons that this came out so well was because the pilot had glider training. And, um, and then um, um, Hudson River. Uh, wasn't one of them a GA pilot as well, a glider pilot or something like that? Actually, they, were both, they, they are both and were both GA pilots yeah. active. 
Uh, and Mr. Sullenberger, Captain Sullenberger, was an active sailplane pilot and sailplane instructor yeah, as well. Yeah, see? So, I, I mean, th- this is a bad, a very, very small sample, but there's some evidence that this is a good idea. I, I, don't, I don't disagree with, with um, the cross, cross-pollination, if you will, uh, producing a much more rounded pilot. And I would certainly agree that um, a line pilot who's, who's been out of a small airplane for a few years should should you know make a point to go out and, and, and refamiliarize him or herself. Um, but I, I still come back to this, this basic airmanship thing. It ought to be in their DNA by the time they get to that level. Well, what percentage of, of airline pilots these days learned in GA? Didn't a lot of them, didn't a large percentage of them learn in the military? That's um, a smaller percentage than it used to be. Uh-huh. Smaller percentage than it used to be, but it, it all basically starts the same. Yeah. Uh, it, starts in a, it starts in a single engine uh, airplane uh, uh, with a propeller. Yeah, but it's uh, not a 172, right? It's like a... It's like it doesn't a, have to be a 172. And a 172 could, is probably, depending on, you know, on, on, uh, on, on where you're headed, a 172 might not be the best first choice. But the basic aer- aerodynamics and the basic airmanship is always the same, and and it always starts with uh, recognition and recovery from stalls. Well, and that, that, I think you that's even get to landing. I think that's where the second part of this recommendation was. What got my rapt attention was in the changing what they've been teaching for stall recovery at high altitudes is the reverse of what they learned in the small air- airplanes at lower altitudes. And that is that you, you don't mess with pitch until you get power back and hopefully reestablish a climb to get back the altitude that you've just been losing uh, and not necessarily put the nose down unless something else comes along that says, wow, power alone's not doing it. Uh, and this was what surprised me at the confirmation of these flight instructors that I talked to you on Saturday was, yeah, that's, you know, that's been kind of an argument that we've been having for a long time that they really... First off, it's not well replicated in the simulator like some other things can be. Sure. Uh, the well, sensation of a stall usually brings on, I mean, a really good stall usually brings along, you know, just a, a, a very brief, hopefully, uh, sensation of light in the seat. Right. Or, well, then that's you know. my question then. Let me ask this question. Is, is it possible that the problem here isn't lack of stall recovery ability, but it's, it's lack wrong. of... Stall recovery. No, 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 no. Is it is it possible that the that the heart, real part of the problem here is stall recognition is absent? Maybe they don't they've realize been, they're stalling. I think they've been teaching them to a, the incorrect standard based on some stuff that might have applied to a small percentage of you know, jet aircraft. Stall and recognition add, again, a bad sample. You, you get the, you get the stall, you add power is what the, right. I was told that but, they're teaching them, and and pitch is secondary to it. Right. And but, pitch needs to be primary to it. But again, a bad small sample, but the two notorious cases that we've been talking about a lot over the last couple of years are Colgan Air um, in Buffalo, where it appears, and of course we don't know for sure, but it appears that the, the captain mis, uh, um, you know, sensed what was going on with the airplane. Given, I thought they'd done a probable cause on that. Maybe they did, okay. So, so that's one. And then two, uh, Air France, and again, we don't have the whole story on Air France, all right, but uh, there was a really interesting piece. I don't know where I read this. I might even have read it in our forums, but there was a piece written by um, an, an Airbus captain, all right, 
who has a lot of experience flying these uh, these uh, uh, fly-by-wire aircraft, and he was he was really really telling us a, a, a dire tale about what it's like to to operate the controls in this in this aircraft. And he was telling a story about how um, the there's apparently no force feedback on this side stick that they use in that aircraft. And no, so Airbus, that's correct. And so you get very very little feedback about how how what the effect might be of the control input that you're putting in. And he speculated uh, that 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 they you know, and again, because they had so other, so few other indications of, you know, the attitude of the aircraft and the airspeed and all that stuff was all screwed up. You know, they, he he wondered if maybe the guy kept putting in too much back stick, just because he was confused between between the inputs and the and the feedback from the stick or the lack of feedback in the stick. But but again, my my question here is, and I'm not really trying to make a point as much as I'm just asking a question, and that is, is it possible that that a a big part of the problem is not that these people were simply responding incorrectly to the stall, but they were recognizing it incorrectly. All right, and that's well, why that's a, that's a given with the Buffalo accident. Yeah, uh, and I, I'm reading the the, the probable cause. Uh, National Transportation Safety Board determines the probable cause of this accident was the captain's inappropriate response to the activation of the stick shaker, which led to an aerodynamic stall from which the airplane did not recover. Um, and there's a line of thinking among pilots that have flown the Dash 8 that the, the co-pilot stowing the flaps at the wrong time contributed it to, the, to the, okay. the inappropriateness of the maneuver. But now what's the likelihood that, that Air France 447 is going to have a similar kind of line that says that they didn't realize they were stalled or they didn't realize I the extent? I think that's 100% correct. Yeah, okay. yeah. I don't think they got it. They didn't under. I think hitting the water was the, a total surprise to them. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, I think that's exactly correct. Let's move on here. That's pretty interesting, but we're kind of going down rat holes now, here. The, the the end game on it was airlines are coming back to training like we train, and they're coming back to little airplanes to do it. If this all goes through, right. and, and I think that's a good thing for us. Yeah, I I agree. Regardless, I, I, I of, do too. I do too. I, I'm just I'm just confused and and bemused on why why this is necessary, why this hasn't been going on in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Agree. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of the Paris Air Show, so um, these uh, A380s, I, 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 you know, Jeb's favorite airplane, by the way, okay? Um, so, <laughs> Fugly, man. Fugly. They are. They're like really big airplanes. They're too big. They're crashing into things left and right. So we saw that video, that really kind of astounding video of, uh, what, a couple months ago where uh, he clipped the, the, uh, the uh, regional jet uh, taxiing and, uh, because he didn't realize where his wingtip was. And now we've got another A380 wingtip that, uh, that uh, clipped a building at the Paris Air Show, Air Show, apparently, while he was taxiing around the grounds. I, I, I'm not sure I'd call that a clipping the building as much as I'd call it marking your territory. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's, that's good. And the reason that's, David that's says good. that is it turns out that the building that the, that the A380 clipped was Embraer's, uh, one of their big competitors' buildings there at the Paris Air Show. Um, there's a great picture on the Internet that shows. Uh, does it actually show the winglet embedded in the corner of the the Embraer building. I think. I think it does. The one on AvWeb. The one on AvWeb has the uh, um, the logo, the Embraer logo. You can barely discern it. It's there uh, with the um, 
what's left of the uh, right wing of the 380 uh, and the winglet embedded in the building. Yeah. It's, it's classic. Yes. And as you might imagine, I think Airbus was a little embarrassed by this whole thing because they apparently spirited right. this 380 off to the far side of the airport to get it out of sight. And uh, uh, so, but all kidding that was, aside. That was one of the A380s without the folding wing option. Yeah, I know. All kidding aside, what's going on here? Are these airplanes too big to operate at our airports? Well, it was an issue before they started using our airports. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, there was a lot of airports that did measurements on taxi line, taxi line center lines to, you know, the nearest obstacle and comparing them to half the wingspan of the A380 and deciding not only, you know, is, is the runway and, and, and the taxiway system you know, <laughs> thick enough to carry the weight. Yeah. But, but you know, can, can it taxi around past our ramp? And our service aisles, and where we set our cargo containers, and our, our luggage carts, and, and all this nonsense. Yeah. Uh, well, sometimes I think they put them someplace that they didn't really check first. Yeah. What was that airplane recently that fell through the pavement? That wasn't a three eighty. That, but what was that a seven eighty seven? Seven thirty seven. It was a thirty seven. Okay. So. Yeah. But these three eighties, you know, in addition to being fugly, they're big, and I'm beginning to wonder whether or not there's going to be a growing issue here that they're just a little bit too big to operate at these airports, or we're going to have to make new procedures, or I don't know what, you know. Well, some of that's already been done. New procedures, fairly easy. You know, keep the nose wheel on the center line, and you know, get a measuring tape out, and if there's not <laughs> enough distance. Don't freaking taxi down the taxiway. <laughs> yeah, okay. You know, and, and think about this procedures. Well, think about this when it's taxiing along a parallel taxiway to an active runway. Yeah. Okay. You know, they, they, there's yeah. there, there, there's no place. What happens if you get a 380 landing while a 380 is taxiing the other way? Yeah. That's your ultimate holy, free holy yeah. that you don't want to have happen. Yeah, that would be a bad thing. Yeah. That would be a bad thing. Yeah. So leaving leaving your mark on a competitor's building about the second floor that that's, that's not a great thing. Either. I know it's just, but it's great. As Jim said, how would you like to? How would you like to have been the Embraer salesperson sitting in the top floor? Yeah, I know. As watching that three eighty go by, uh, how would you feel? Yeah, that or or the or the crew of the uh, regional jet that uh, got clipped uh, at wherever it was, Kennedy or. I'm, I'd like to hear a follow-up on that because, uh, <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, you know, status of, what's the status of the RJ? They they almost tore in half, and and you know what happened to the captain and crew of the yeah. RJ? I've been thinking well, we need. There, there, there was a rumor going around that uh, the airline wanted to charge extra for the low-level aerobatic ride on that regional jet. <laughs> yeah. I've been thinking, all kidding aside, I've been thinking that we need to do an episode of the podcast where we go back uh, and we'll, uh, you know, we'll kind of do a where little... Where are they now? Yeah, do a little research and kind of follow up on a bunch of these uh, these incident and accident stories that we've talked about. And uh, you, mean, see, you mean put effort into planning this podcast? <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, well, that probably means it won't happen, but what the heck. Re- re- Re, re, research. It's nice to dream. Re, research. It's nice to dream about. Re, research. Anyways, speaking of research, okay, here's now. Um, I just really have reservations about bringing this up, but a, a listener oh, wants us to talk. Know. A listener wants us to talk more about Lean of Peak, Rich of Peak, uh, and the whole you know uh, engine temperature operations at cruise and the whole thing, and uh, and and I might have kind of just said, well, I think we've covered that, but Jeb, you seem to think this would be a good thing for us to revisit. Yes, no, what? I don't know if it uh, is a good thing or a bad thing. It's certainly a controversial thing. 
I, it, I don't recall. It is a thing. We talk about this. Um, and uh, if there's, you know, some listeners out there that, that uh, uh, want us to get into this, or, uh, we'd certainly be happy to do it. I, 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 I think the, uh, uh, the listener who uh, uh, put that, that question up on the forums had a couple of good questions. And if there's if there's some some uh, uh, lack of understanding or some misunderstandings out there, um, you know we're here to help. Yeah. Well, it's like a very brief little posting. Let me just read it here. Uh, this is from listener Riga Runner uh, in the forums, and uh, whom we know and, and who is a good friend of the podcast. Yeah. And he writes. Uh, he says, Jack, I, I sure wish you could draw Dave and Jeb out on the question of leaning the engine. And when I read that line, by the way, I thought he was joking. I'm thinking it like as if I ever have a hard time drawing Dave and Jeb out on a subject. But uh, but apparently he's serious because he goes on to write. Uh, My instructor in a Cessna 172 left me with nothing more than a simple rule. Quote, when you reach 3,000 feet, pull the mixture back until the engine falters, then push it in a little bit and keep flying, end quote. Um, but, which, by the way, is the training I had, too, um, uh, years ago. Uh, uh, Rigorena then concludes by saying, you guys were tantalizing with your comments about Rich of Peak and Lean of Peak and the various conditions when you would want one or the other, but the details were just beyond reach. Could you come back to that subject again? And uh, and by the way, Champ Guy immediately came back and posted, uh, uh, you know, kind of an interesting, you know, I, I think... My guess is you guys will agree with what he said, um, but what he basically said was it, it also right. it has to do with the it, it also has to do with the complexity of the airplane that you're flying and you you know in your base you know your average 152 and even some 172s you don't have the instrumentation to do a lot of this fancy rich of peak lean of peak stuff, um, but you tell me what's the deal? Well, um, Champ guys got it got it pretty well down. Um, yeah, a lot depends on the airplane's instrumentation. Um, when when Amy was on last, we got to talking about um, uh, how they've um, changed the inlets on their cowling on their RV10, and it's the running cooler, and they can they can run a few things, uh, they can get a little bit more power out of it. <clears throat> um, that's I think one of the things that got us uh, back on this topic. I'm not sure, but. Um, uh, as I say, Champ Guy's right. Instrumentation really tells the tale here on how you can operate your engine. Um, and the leaning it until it starts to stumble and then enriching it uh, till it smooths out and maybe a little bit more after that just for grins, and I'll get to that in a moment, uh, is always a, is a good policy if you don't have a good EGT or if you don't have a, an engine monitor. Uh, if you don't have some other means of uh, determining the mixture, whether it's a fuel flow or or gauge, or um, um, I don't know, maybe tur- or turbine inlet temperature on a turbine. <clears throat> Excuse me. But uh, in my view, here, here's the real uh, crux of the biscuit, as we said before. Um, and this is uh, straight out of, the, of uh, uh, some of the teachings of uh, out of Ada, Oklahoma, and GAMI, and uh, the advanced pilot seminars, uh, who have done just a lot of research on some of these topics and, and refreshed. Uh, with modern instrumentation and modern uh, uh, observations, some of the old tricks that, that the old guys knew back in the 40s and 50s about how to run an internal combustion engine. And basically, as you as you lean from full rich on on these engines, presuming you know, 100% power and, and uh, sea level in a, in a non-turboed engine, as you lean from from full, full rich, um, you and you go to 
peak EGT, and then you go past peak EGT. What you've, what you've traversed in doing this, if you look at EGT temperatures alone, uh, you've traversed something like that a lot of people just simply like to call the red zone. And the red zone is, is uh, an area, say, 50 to 75 degrees Fahrenheit um, rich of peak to maybe 50 degrees lean of peak, uh, where you don't want to run the engine at high power. Um, how you how you determine where you are relative to that that red zone is really the one of the problems here and one of the reasons you need uh, good instrumentation. But at high power settings, you don't want to run the engine in that zone for for two basic reasons. One, um, there's a lot of excess heat being produced. The engine's being being asked to do a lot of of work. Uh, there's not enough fuel to keep it as cool as it should be. Uh, if you enrich the mixture, uh, the engine will run a lot cooler. You'd also have a lot less risk of detonation, which is the second problem. Um, running the engine hot and, and hard uh, and in that red zone, and because of internal cylinder pressures and, and some other variables, uh, you risk uh, damage to the cylinders. Hold on just a moment. I can never find the mute button on this. Okay, I found the mute button. We're finished with that. Okay. Um, so to me, the trick is staying out of the red zone or, or transitioning through the red zone as quickly as you can. Um, again, going back to you know, lack of instrumentation, lack of an EGT gauge, or lack of an engine monitor, uh, you don't want to even get there. And one of the ways to uh, ensure that you're not there is to do, as, as Champ Guy suggests here in his post, which is lean the mixture until the engine starts to stumble and then enriching it some more. And you know, I would add... you know. Until it runs smoothly, and then put another notch back in, in uh, for that also. Um, that way, you're pretty sure of not being anywhere close to that red zone. Now, if you want to run, and that's an, again a very high power setting. Um, keep in mind that a non-turbocharged engine, by definition, will lose power as you climb to altitude. Mm -hmm. um, and also keep in mind that what we're talking about is the power produced by the engine and the mix, the appropriate mixture for that power setting. Um, it can be lean, it can be rich at peak, but there's an appropriate uh, setting either way for a given power setting. Um, so, what do we do? Well, um, at, at, an, at altitude where the engine can't make a lot of power, we can pretty much put the mixture wherever we want to. If we, if we graft it out, this red zone would be kind of pyramid, uh, shaped like a pyramid or, or conically shaped. Mm -hmm. Where it, it, it's it's fat at the bottom and narrow at the top. The top would be for a normally aspirated engine, uh, depending on how aggressive you want to run, uh, between eight and nine thousand feet. After that, you can put the mixture anywhere you want to. There's no way you can hurt the engine um, because it's not making enough power to uh, uh, to sustain any damage. I routinely run my engine at high altitudes uh, above eighty five hundred nine thousand feet routinely run it at peak, okay? Um, that's, to me, the best place to run it. I'm, by definition, getting the most power, and I'm also getting uh, the, the leanest mixture of, of the best fuel economy. Uh, it's putting out about 60%, 65% power minimum, I'm sorry, maximum at, at those altitudes. And again, I can, uh, even, even the manufacturers say I can run the engine pretty much anywhere I want to at those power settings. Uh, if you want to be at a lower altitude and still use that kind of a power setting and still run it at peak, you can. 
You just have to make sure that you're below, say, 65, 60% power on the engine. And we have, we have tables for that. It's, it's not rocket science. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes down to the Lena Peak, Richa Peak thing, where, where I would leave the, the topic and turn it over to Dave is, are you rich enough uh, from peak EGT, and are you lean enough from peak EGT? You don't want to be in that little red box that, that again, is fat at the bottom and narrow at the top. Right. Cool. David, you want to add something to that? Yeah. That, <laughs> just, 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 just one little thing, and th- this was taught to me very early. Uh, that, that old canard about you don't lean below 3,000. Right. I know you're big on this. Go ahead. It makes well, sense to me, too. Go ahead. If you, if you make it 3,000 density altitude, okay, I, I can go part of the way with you. But if you're just talking about below 3,000 feet AGL, wherever you are, any time of day, any time of year, that's bunk. Uh, you, 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 you can find yourself very easily with such a, a, a deficit of possible power because the engine is running overly rich for the density altitude that you're in. It actually hurts you on takeoff. The engine's not climbing for you like it should. The takeoff roll is going to be longer. Uh, it's not going to cool well because you're going to try to get the climb rate up more than likely and pull the nose up to just where you won't stall and screw with the cooling. Uh, if it's a fixed pitch prop, you run it up to where you normally would and then lean until it rises about 75 or 100 RPM and leave it there. That's not much leaning if the DA is below 3,000 feet. But if it's like... Augusta, Kansas, Wichita, Newton at 1,300 or so, and 85, 90, 95 degree day or hotter, then you're up above 4,000 feet, uh, you know, before you unplug your ignition key from the car, mm-hmm. now, alone when you try to take off. Now, uh, yeah, I, I would agree with that, and I would, I would add the caveat that um, um, the main type of operation I'm talking about when I when I talk about where the red zone is and setting power and setting the mixture and everything is cruise operations, takeoff operations, uh, uh, or any time that we want maximum power, uh, everything the engine can put out. Um, generally, I want to run Richard Peak, and the great thing about running Richard Peak um, is the curves uh, relative to power output and mixture. Are relatively flat. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, as long as the mixture is well rich of peak, there's probably a, I don't know, pick a number, 20, 25 percent range there, where putting the mixture just about anywhere in that range is not really going to affect um, the engine, uh, the power output of the engine, the susceptibility to detonation, or how well it's cooled. As long as uh, uh, everything else is equal. Yeah, you can get it too rich. That's, you know, that's when they flood out. That's when they're not making enough power on takeoff. Right, and that's what David's warning against. Right, that's what he's talking about. And that's a, that's a valid concern, and that's a whole different. Right, uh, and so, and I, I just uh, want to ask thing relative to to Lena Peak running in, running Lena Peak and cruise. Right, and and I just want to ask one David one follow up question here. So. Um, in these in, in these situations where it makes sense to adjust the mixture prior to takeoff, um, I, I think I think obviously you're going to reset the mixture once you get to your cruise altitude. 
Do you need to be thinking about adjusting the mixture during the climb? Is, are you going to move into a range that's bad while you climb? Ooh, well, ooh, ooh, pick me, pick me. Let David go for a cut there. The, the way I was taught and the way I practiced, and this got easier when I got a totalizer in there. I, I had one, e, one cylinder on an EGT, uh, which was helpful. Uh, the fuel flow was better. But whatever I start with, I lean a little bit more every thousand feet. Oh, okay. Every thousand to fifteen hundred feet, all the way up. Then I get my pitch attitude set up for the cruise, and then I lean again to whatever. And in a carbureted engine, that that uh, advanced pilot seminar Jeb was talking about, he and I both attended that. They even taught a technique for getting a carbureted engine to run just a little bit lean a peak, where the temperatures and the fuel flow. Are, come back down just a little bit pressures come down a little bit uh if you really want to stretch the airplane's range that's not a bad place to be costs you a couple of knots but it's nothing that you know you're you're, you're going to cry over yeah and uh, so uh, horshack was that going to be your answer too well it's going to be part of my answer um the other part of my answer is <laughs> uh has has to do with you know when we're when we're worried about a high density altitude takeoff which is what david is describing and we take we execute the takeoff, and then we start climbing. The last thing we want to do is enrich in the mixture. That's right. Um, as we climb, what happens? We, there's less air, okay? Uh-huh. If we don't adjust the mixture, the, the ratio of air to fuel uh, is, is, is altered in favor of more fuel. So what we have to do if we want better, best performance from the engine is to lean the mixture as we climb. Now, again, how do we lean it? How much do we lean it? All that kind of sort of depends on our instrumentation. Yeah, yeah in, in the 180 Comanche, that where I practice most of this stuff to to the nth degree, uh, you know, no autopilot. I like to keep the altitude within 25 to 30 feet, plus or minus as I cruise, and keep within three degrees heading. Uh, you know, get the best climb rate I could to altitude, and then settle in with the best fuel burn I could get. I found with with the totalizer that it was about four tenths of a gallon per 1,000 to 1,500 feet, depending on, on how hot the day was. And he could just about dial that in by watching the number. You slide it out a little bit and watch the number come down and feel the climb get a little bit better. Another 1,000, 1,200 feet, slide it back out a little bit more. Do that step by step. And it's a great way to exercise your right hand. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so many jokes. Oh, my God. When you're not out skyjacking. <laughs> yeah, I know. No, no, no. Don't go there. Um, let's see now. Moving on. Moving on, you know, please. One, 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 final, one, one okay. final thing. Yeah. Um, and I, I think this might get to, to something Riga Runner um, is seeking but didn't, didn't receive yet. Um, one of the corollaries to being, to flying at high power and having the engine rich enough that you don't suffer uh, overheating or, or detonation or anything like that, you can also have it lean enough that you're not going to encounter any of those problems. Um, I routinely, at low, al- low altitude flights, just, just last week when I hopped the airplane down to pump on a gourd to the avionics shop, 1,500 feet, full throttle, and I pulled the red knob out to where um, I'm you know, probably getting... I don't know, um, 70% power maybe, uh, 75% power. But the mixture was so lean, and, and uh, um, I was doing, I don't know, 14 gallons an hour, maybe 13 and a half, something like that, uh, 150, 155 knots. 
um, the mixture was lean enough that there was no way that I was going to harm the engine, um, even at a low altitude, even with the throttle wide open. Um, so the punchline here is, are you rich enough? Are you lean enough to not harm the engine? Yeah, okay. Are you rich enough? Are you lean enough? And by golly, do you just like yourself? So, here's a subject that's... Uh, uh, <laughs> here's a subject. It goes back to that exercising your right arm thing. Um, here's a... I'm going to have to cut that out. <laughs> um, here's a subject that's been on the list for, uh, for a few weeks now, and it keeps getting pushed off uh, to a future um, week. And uh, let's see if we can just see if there's anything going on here. And that is this uh, ASDI data thing. Um, and I'm going to confess up front that this is a subject that for some reason hurts my brain. I, I can't quite, I, I cannot, I keep getting myself confused as to who is on which side of this thing and who wants what. And uh, let, let me see if I can summarize it real simply and then you guys correct me, okay? There have been for some time now services available to the public like, for example, FlightAware, where you could put in a tail number and or a flight number and track an aircraft as it's flying on an IFR flight plan or in the system somehow. But for some time now, uh, individual aircraft have been able to apply to the system to be blocked, to be invisible, basically, to be hidden. All right, And that's been the way it's worked for a while. And then about three, four, five months ago or something like that, who, the FAA or somebody, whoever was running the system said, no, we're not going to let you hide anymore. Everything's going to be public. Everything's going to be visible. And then a bunch of people who wanted to be visible for varying degrees of good reasons said, no, we do want to be invisible. And it's kind of been pushing and shoving. What's going on here? And if I got it right, am I close? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's close. Yeah. So uh, what's the deal here? Now, the, the headline on our little list here says alphabet groups go to court to block ASDI data. So what's the status here and where are we and what are people trying to do? This is a little bit like who's on first. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the blocked aircraft registration request lets you request that your tail number be blocked from services like FlightAware. Right. And the threshold was fairly low. And everybody was happy with that. Uh, then... And when you say the threshold was low, you mean basically all you had to do was ask? Basically, yeah. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. Uh, well, then some folks used some of the flight data to develop a, 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 a story about how com some companies and some company executives use their aircraft that wasn't all that flattering. The FAA said, you know, why, why are we blocking this? This is really a public system, public data. Uh, they published a proposal to change the rules. They changed the proposal so that if you can get Treasury Department to certify that you have a security problem, they will honor your blocked aircraft registration request. Uh, in the meantime, the FAA is not really wanting to give them more than that. The FAA didn't really make it clear how you get, how you cross that threshold to a valid security concern that will make them honor the request. So the NBAA, AOPA, and EAA pooled their resources. Uh, they're, 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 
their legal dollars and filed a joint challenge in court to the FAA slash DOT's published proposal to change how bar is handled. That's kind of where we are right now. Members of Congress have gotten involved. There's, okay. No, uh, let me just... Let me just ask Nothing you. Nothing can ever go wrong when members of Congress get Yeah, I know. Right, I, exactly. But no, let me just make sure I'm clear on this now. So, so the alphabet groups are challenging whatever the status quo is. Is the status quo now that you cannot routinely block yourself in the system? I don't think that's that is the status, happened yet. status quo Jeff. right now. And, and in full disclosure, um, I have availed myself of this service to block my end number. Mm-hmm. Uh, from site, it's like Flight Aware and, and Flight Explorer. Okay. Um, there's a lot of different reasons for that, but again, full disclosure. Um, presently, what has happened is the uh, the FAA has has generated a rule uh, that basically says, I think it's as of July one. Um, I'm sorry, August one, thereabouts. August two, perhaps it is. Um, they will no longer block um, in numbers. Um, just on the sake of the operator wishing it blocked. Mm-hmm. There has to be a legitimate security concern as the DOT slash FAA will define um, before an end number can be blocked. Um, given uh, my lack of a, uh, of a uh, uh, concern, security concern that would meet the uh, DOT FAA's definition, my number will no longer be blocked according to that policy. I don't really know how I feel about that. Um, uh, again, that's as of, I think, August 2. And this has been done via a rulemaking um, the DOT FAA published uh, back in late May. Um, the alphabet soup in, in, in NBAA, AOPA, and EAA have sued uh, uh, the DOT to block this, this uh, uh, action on their part. Uh, and I hope they're successful, uh, irrespective of whether uh, I want to continue to block my in number. Mm-hmm. But in, but here's here's one of the things that that just um, really burns my butt if we if if we can put it if we can put it that way is um, all of the military flights are blocked from this ASDI data, and most, if not all, government and FAA flights are also blocked from this ASDI data. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that there's a legitimate security concern for um, in one who may, right. might be carrying uh, a secretary, might be carrying cabinet, a cabinet secretary, might be carrying the, uh, uh, the FAA administrator, might be carrying some high-level FAA executives, might be uh, on a training flight, might be on an empty uh, positioning flight. I don't know that there's a real good security reason for that information to be blocked yeah, either. It makes some and sense. What, yeah. what, what I'm seeing is the government now is telling me that I, I can't protect, I can't hide my, uh, or, or, or uh, uh, I can't choose to uh, hide uh, my comings and goings via my personal airplane. Um, but the government gets to choose whether... It can it can block itself from being in this data, and I just find that a little bit uh, off-putting. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's what's good for that goose is also good for that gander, and if if the government in, in any agency can arbitrarily decide it wants to block its data, why shouldn't I be able to do the same thing for 
perhaps better reasons than uh, a positioning flight or a training flight by N1. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I yeah, I don't have an airplane to block. I don't know whether I would or not. Um, but I, as longtime listeners will know, that I've always been uncomfortable with the fact that I can snoop on people's airplanes like this. You know, and uh, so um, on the other hand, full disclosure. I mean, I don't see what you know. Visibility is a good thing. Transparency is a good thing. So, anyways, um, David, anything you want to add to this? And, and, and the and the punchline is: is someone really, really wants to find out uh, what an airplane is is doing or has been doing? Um, they can do so. They don't have to use the ASDI data. They can use some other means to find out what a specific airplane is doing. The ASDI data just simply makes it easier. And, right. not coincidentally, it's convenient it, uh, and it's free for the free, services that use it. Free to the public. Yeah. Uh, unless unless you've chosen to block your, your end number. Right. Um, so, I mean, one of the things that went on here, too, um, was uh, some corporate um, responsibility organizations had filed FOIA requests. This goes back a couple of years, Dave. Uh, correct me if my memory is failing in here. Uh, and there was a big to-do about whether that FOIA request should be honored. Be, they wanted to get, you know, data on various N numbers that were blocked. And um, the corporations, the entities operating those aircraft uh, fought that. And I think NBA fought that. I don't remember how that was resolved. I think they uh, lost. I think, they, I, think, I, think it was, I think the data was released, yeah. 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 So, and, and, and that's a real rub for a lot of these folks because, you know, the – how do we put this? The rhetoric about business aviation is based on these, you know, the, these testaments of the, you know, a high percentage of the time. It's low-level or mid-level people, engineers, techs, companies support, blind out-of-the-way places, and that's true. Some of it is high-powered execs, high-level uh, board members and such flying to very important business functions in very luxurious locales. Now, without getting into the whys and wherefores of why they would pick very far out of the way sometimes, but very exotic and luxurious locales to hold these meetings and the fact that to a certain extent that stuff is tax-deductible wherever they decide to do it, it's that part of the business operation that contributes to a larger black eye against business aviation. Uh, you know, the, the, the outfits that track this stuff, they, they don't get their, you know, hackles up when they see, you know, 50 flights of mid-level support people or folks helping build a new factory go to some out-of-the-way airport out in rural nowhere. But if a chairman or a CEO or CFO goes to a trade association meeting in Aspen uh, during ski season, well, that you know, that 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 looks that, that's a little bit tougher to explain away. Well, um, y- yes and no. It's, I, I'm I'm going to be the last person to suggest there haven't been abuses of uh, of uh, corporate aircraft use. By, uh, well, and, and they have to do that. They just but, got uh, if, the if, if the trade association or the board meeting is in Aspen in, in January, um, that's where the board meeting is. That's where the trade association meeting is. Um, 
yeah, someone got to choose that. Someone made that decision. Uh, but again, that's where the meeting is, just like, you know, whether it's in, in, in Miami in January. Um, and I think we've all, you know, kind of, you know, wink, wink, nod, nod at having the opportunity to go to an event like this, uh, whether it's a, a meeting of your board of directors or a trade association meeting or something like that. That's in Las Vegas in, in February, okay? Uh, and you're coming from, you know, East Jibit, Massachusetts or something. Oh, my God. That sounds like a trip I took once. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, stuff like that does happen. Um, and, again, you know, there, there are a lot of, uh, there's certainly been a lot of abuses uh, of the ability and the privilege. Um, okay. I, I Just as there are a lot of abuses of privileges of, of uh, using cars and using boats and, yeah. and uh, using office equipment and okay fine that's not the that's not the real problem here the real yeah. problem here uh, to me is um, the government coming in and telling me that I don't have a legitimate security concern therefore everything that I do in my airplane is going to be broadcast to the public um, at the same time they say well but but we know best so we're we're going to uh, we're going to block our own activities in our own airplanes, uh, but that's okay because you know, trust us. We're just the government. We're, we're not going to yeah. do anything wrong. Yeah, agree. Yeah. Shoutouts. Let's see now. Uh, kudos Shout-out. to the state of Maine. All right, the state of Maine came to their senses, and uh, we talked about this that we thought they were coming to their senses. So about whatever a couple of years ago or so, state of Maine became uh, added themselves to the list of states that uh, added a bizarre excise tax to visiting aircraft that uh, flew in and landed in the state. Uh, what within the like first six months after they had been purchased, and, uh, and just causes all kinds of havoc for people who are trying to use their airplanes for everyday travel. Um, and uh, uh, we heard a while back that the state of Maine was trying to to fix this problem, and apparently that just became official the other day that they have in fact done away with that uh, excise sales tax thing, and uh, there's no longer a danger taking your newly purchased airplane into the state of Maine. And I want to oh they, they went even farther than that, dude. What, what they, they, they eliminated sales taxes on aircraft and parts. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, whether you're indigent, uh, I didn't mean indigent, resident, yeah, <laughs> they, they, they ain't many indigent of, airplane owners, I don't think. Yeah, yeah. well, if you're it, a resident of Massachusetts, that means you're indigent. Um, but How the, about indigenous to Maine? Oh, there we go. Airplane, or you're a visitor and you got to buy, you know, a starter or spark plugs or something like that yeah uh, they took away the sales tax on yeah. us yeah so that that could be a big deal particularly yeah. if you bought an airplane you know where this comes from by the way i i absolutely give credit uh blanking on his name um um the cirrus guy um Alan, Alan Clapmeyer, by any chance? Alan Clapmeyer, um, deciding to take and put the uh, the uh, that uh, I'm so bad on names tonight. Kestrel, uh, the Kestrel, the Kestrel uh, turboprop uh, aircraft that he's gotten involved with, and they're going to be uh, building them up in uh, in uh, uh, north of Portland. There, um, um, don't tell me I can do it. Uh, oh, the old Over naval air station. Days. Yeah, I know. I don't. Not know anymore. Well, I, said, I thought I said former. Anyways, um, oh. 
there in Maine, I think, is starting to get religion about the the, the general aviation industry, you know, and uh, they realized that there was the potential for people to bring their airplanes to work on them up there at Brunswick, Brunswick, Maine. There we go. Hey, if you can do it for Duluth, you can do it for anywhere. Exactly, you know, and so uh, Alan Klapmeyer, you know, yay, good for you for uh, for getting the ball rolling here and starting to educate Maine. I mean, I'm assuming this is my guess as to what where this all comes from. Or, well, another part of it might have been that uh, no other state in New England has a sales tax on aircraft parts. Yeah, yeah. So uh, <laughs> you know, you're keeping up with the New Hampshires. Yeah, yeah. So I uh, don't even go there. Which anyway, is an admittedly low bar. I would say. Oh man. <laughs> You had to say that, didn't you? You had to say that. I, I, I seem to remember that Florida is one of the states that still has this bad sales tax, excise tax. No, it was it was never it was never it was a property tax, and it had to do with uh, bringing an airplane into the into the state within the first six months. And well, that's been resolved. That was the main thing as well. And uh, so, anyways, yeah. Maine, yay for Maine! Congratulations. All states should come to their senses in a similar way. What else we got? You guys got any shout-outs? Come on. Jeb? Um, I know you can do it. Yeah. Okay. Colton Harris-Moore. Uh, we've talked about him in the past. Yes. Uh, he's led a colorful life. Um, you may know him, dear listener, as the Barefoot Bandit. Um, he's, he was caught or turned himself in. I forget which. Um, uh, and uh, last week, uh, whenever it was, the 16th or 17th of June, um, uh, pleaded guilty mm-hmm. uh, in, in federal court in Seattle, apparently, uh, under a deal with prosecutors to settle charges against him in federal and state courts. 28-page, 28-page plea agreement. I've seen POHs that aren't that long. <laughs> I know. It's quite a deal, too. Uh, go ahead. Tell us what – any notable parts of the agreement. Yeah, uh, agreed to forfeit any profits, intellectual property, or life story rights from his crimes. Yeah, it just bums me out, man. I wanted to, I wanted a shot at being in a, you know, an extra in that movie or something. Well, there'll be a movie. It's just that he doesn't there'll get be the, a movie. He just he doesn't get the money. Yeah, well, you know, his, his in his pocket. Uh, you know, and and I'm I'm kind of suspicious of this kid because I think he's a hustler. You know, but, but that's just totally you based think? on nothing, right? Um, but. Uh, you know, so I'm thinking, what is he up to here? He's thinking, you know, five moves ahead of everybody else. Um, but on the face of it, you know, he's kind of like, you know, trying to make it up. And he said that one of the reasons he was willing to agree to this is because he wants any of the money that comes from the book or the movie or whatever to go to reimburse uh, some of the victims of his crimes. So, I mean, if that's I've true. I heard he was saving up for shoes. Yeah, it's, that's, maybe that's what it is, too. <laughs> so, anyways, yeah, that's the latest in the story of the uh, of the bear. Foot Bandit. Uh, what's his first name? Something Harris Moore. Colton Harris. Colton. Colton Harris Moore. Oh, Colton Harris Moore. This this reminds me of the the guy um, whose name escapes me, but he was the, the subject of the movie um, Catch Me If You Can. Yeah. Tom Hanks. Right. Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, the guy was you know a con man, flim flam artist. Yeah. Cutting bad checks all. Over yeah, that guy just uh, impersonated people. This guy yeah. actually. They stole people's airplanes. Right, right. Um, this this guy, you know, stole boats and cars and airplanes. Uh, the 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 guy in, in Catch Me If You Can just cited a bunch of bad checks and passed himself off as a doctor and an airline pilot and a variety of other, and a lawyer. Hey, he flew for years as an airline pilot, never had a license. That's right. Happens in India all the time. <laughs> oh, you're going to get letters. 
<laughs> Anyways, all right. Uh, uh, David, I think you've got one, too. Well, I had one, but I'm not sure it'll be – it's definitely not going to be done in no, no. time. So I'm not going to mention the uh, advanced camping discount going out at the end of the month. I will mention we hope to see you at Oshkosh. We're going to be at Oshkosh. We're going to be doing stuff at Oshkosh. We're going to be on the radio at Oshkosh. Mm-hmm. We're going to be in the newspaper at Oshkosh. And we're going to be around, and we hope to see you there. And if you're planning on coming, do you have the no-tam? <laughs> do you have the no-tam? Yeah. If we bump into you and say, so, would you like us to autograph your no-tam? You'd have it with oh, you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, David, you make a really good point. We always tell the fact that we do the podcast while we're at Oshkosh, but we also, um, and you guys even way more than me, are involved in the newspaper at, at Oshkosh. And um, even if you're not there at AirVenture, you can take advantage of the newspaper. The newspaper is all on the web, and if you want to follow what's going on at AirVenture this year, or for that matter, read up on past years, um, all of the stuff that I've written, all the stuff that Jeb's written, all the stuff that Dave, that you you have edited and, and, and Jeb edited when he was the editor. It's all available on the airventure.org website. And, uh, you know, you should, you should look into that and follow along on uh, AirVenture that way as well this year. Oh, and they'll be streaming the radio. That includes us and when it's not us. Yeah, so. yep. And uh, and they repurpose a lot of the newspaper stuff to go. I think they're going to do a lot. I, I don't know. I just heard through the and grapevine. E- even that, if you're not going to be there, you can download the NOTAM and follow along at home. Yeah. You don't have a thing about the NOTAM, do you? Okay. Uh, that's it. Anything well, else? I think that's, that's a very cool idea, though, because, you know, if, if you bump into us um, on the Oshkosh Air Venture Grounds this year, uh, and you know, introduce yourself. Say, hey, I'm, a, I'm a listener, or whatever. And, and a lot of people have done that over the years, and, and we enjoy that. And we're always happy to meet a new listener. We will be happy to autograph your copy of the Notum anytime, anywhere. Oh, I like it. Yeah, okay, that's good. And, and, and except if you see me going into one of the portables, you do wait till I come out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you'll be happy you did. Yeah, okay. that and 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 be, feel free to leave your pin behind. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Okay. Uh, let's see now. It seems to me there was something I wanted to cover before we finish this thing up, but I now have forgotten what it was. Anyways, that's enough. We're done. We're done. We are so done tonight. Uh, Jeb Burnside. Yeah, Jeb Burnside is a freelance aviation writer. And yeah, Jeb Burnside. <laughs> an aviation writer and editor, serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. Jeb, where can people find you? I have no idea what you guys are going on about. I missed completely whatever it was you said. Uh, where can people find you on the Internet? Well, one great place to start is, is uh, the Google machine. Uh, you could also start at uncontrolledairspace.com. Uh, you might wind up at jeburnside.com. Uh, another place to, to get uh, a flavor of the day job kind of work is uh, aviationsafetymagazine.com. Um, might find me on avweb.com. Might find me on aea.net. Um, or you can use the Google thing again, as I mentioned up, up front, and uh, just ignore that stuff about the goats. And Dave Higdon is an aviation photographer, an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. David, where can people find you on the Internet? Well, anybody who's going to be at Oshkosh, and even if you're not, you should snag a copy. It'll be out at Oshkosh of the Aircraft Electronics Association Pilot's Guide to Avionics. I know that I've managed to squeeze one or two words in there. I believe Mr. Burnside did as well. 
and, and along with some of our other friends and, and, and co-conspirators in, in aviation journalism. It'll be worth your while, and it'll help make sure they don't go home with ones they couldn't give away. <laughs> or you could you could look for us on aea.net, avbuyer.com, uh, that aviation safety link that Jeb just mentioned. I show up there from time to time. Even once in a while in, in, in a coming episode, uh, eaa.org, uh, a magazine called Sport Aviation, coming soon to a mailbox near you. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, a new media producer, and sometimes known as Skyjack. You can learn more about me at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. Big thanks to uh, Jeff Ward for creating our show notes. Thanks to Mike Morgan and Royce Earl and to the many other listeners who have created the UCAP disclaimer clips. We are also very grateful for the financial support we receive from our listeners. For information on how you can make a donation to this podcast, see the Uncontrolled Airspace homepage and the box in the right-hand column labeled Tip Jar. It doesn't need to be very much. Just 10 or $15 over the span of a year is a big help. And don't forget you can visit with all of us at the Uncontrolled Airspace website. You can read the blog, view the forums, check out the wiki, the aviation movies list, the new ratings webpage of fame, and more. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, what were you going to say? Best way to live long is go fly, because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan and may even get you an extra weekend off. And that's enough talking. Let's go flying. See you at Oshkosh, AMFF. The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that.